Welcome to the Taiwanese Diaspora Podcast, where we use personal storytelling to connect people of Taiwanese heritage from all around the world. I am Cynthia, and I'm excited to use this podcast platform as a way to explore what it means to be Taiwanese X. 大家好，欢迎收听台湾人网络广播。我是阿秀，用这个平台来跟华侨华裔的台湾人聊他们的生活过程和未来的梦想。This is episode twenty-two. Hi, listeners. This is Cynthia. I am back from taking a little break from podcasting, and I am very excited to share with you this episode that I recorded with Scott back in April of twenty twenty.、Um, this is pretty soon after the U.S. went on lockdown because of coronavirus. If you're like me and miss traveling, have no worries. You can armchair travel through podcasts by listening to other people's stories. Scott's gonna talk a little bit about what it's like being an, an international teacher and living abroad in India and Vietnam, and some of the activities he likes. If you stay till the very end, we'll feature one of Scott's EPs because he is also a very talented musician. I'd like to apologize. During the episode, I referred to Ho Chi Minh City as just Ho Chi Minh, but really it should be Ho Chi Minh City or Saigon. And also, I want to extend my thanks to Paul, who helped me do the first batch of editing on this episode. It was a super major help. Thanks, Paul. This is the twenty-second episode. We're going to talk to Duoyi. He's in the southwest United States, in Boston, a small city outside Boston. And later, he was a teacher at a Chinese school. And he wanted to go 然后就到了印度教书，然后过了几年又到越南教书。他今天是从越南的胡志明市跟我们聊。我觉得我们的话题都还蛮有趣的。虽然我们现在都在隔离，希望听到别的人在国外的故事，可以让我们享受一下。Scott, thank you so much for coming to the show. Yeah, sure. Please do a quick introduction for everybody, and we'll get started. 你好，大家，我是多义。Hello, everybody. My name is Scott Shu. I am a Taiwanese American teacher, musician, father. I'm 34 years old, turning 35 next week. Happy and... birthday!、Oh, thanks. And I'm currently living abroad right now in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. Okay, so you grew up in Massachusetts. I did. Yeah, I'm based out of Massachusetts as well right now. So would love to hear about your childhood here, and how you found yourself traveling and teaching abroad. So let's see. My my parents, both Taiwanese, they immigrated to the U.S. in the '80s, mainly for my dad's master's degree program. He had kind of like a kind of long, windy journey. He, he was in Alaska, which is where I was born.、He、was in Virginia, Virginia Tech. That's where my sister was born. He studied to become an engineer and found his way to Western Massachusetts, and that's kind of where we settled down. And he was working for a firm based in Westfield. They had some project that was it had to do with some sort of cleanup in Boston with the Charles River, I think. But he got laid off from his job, and instead of moving back to Taiwan, he decided to start a business selling tropical fish. Which is it's one of his hobbies and like it was sort of a passion of his, and that's what they're doing there still to this day. 
That's awesome. I actually visited Amherst not too long ago, and I was actually very surprised by the amount of Asian food that they had there. And it's just like a cool, really cool city that I didn't really know, know too much about. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's got Amherst College, University of Massachusetts, Mount Holyoke, Smith, Hampshire College. So we would call it the five college area. So that, that kind of draws in an international community. And so it's kind of like its own diverse little bubble in a small college town. So there definitely is like a thriving Asian American community there and also international, I guess, Asian community there as well. And so, yeah, I grew up in Amherst, basically spent my entire life there up until pretty recently. I went to public schools there, K through 12, went to UMass, the same town. And I started teaching right out of college in the town right next door, South Hadley. So I really spent a lot of time in that kind of little bubble. It wasn't until seven years ago where I kind of decided that it was really time for me to finally leave home, you know, and kind of see the world. And so we moved our family abroad, first to New Delhi, India, and uh, now we're here in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. Okay, so many questions. Go ahead. What brought you to New Delhi? Are you, did you, were you teaching international school as well over in New Delhi? Yes, I was. So I, I taught for six years in public schools. And there, there, there are a lot of reasons for why we kind of decided to move. Big reason for it actually was I knew that I was going to lose my job because my school district was shrinking. And so the enrollment was kind of going down. And so I just knew that I was going to have to move somewhere else. So I kind of started doing a very kind of broad search. And, you know, growing up, going to college, I met a lot of, you know, people from kind of all over the world. I met a lot of friends who had gone through the international education system and like schools in Europe and Asia. And so I, I learned about the experience, I guess. And so, you know, it, it was also a time in, in, in my life where I was really looking for change. You know, I was like in my kind of mid, late 20s, you know, like my social circles were sort of changing. I was parent to two kids, you know, just, just a lot of things were changing, I guess, in my life. Yeah. So anyways, I cast a very wide net, I guess, and found myself at a job fair in Boston for international schools and did a bunch of interviews. And there was this one school, the American Embassy School in New Delhi, that just seemed like a really good fit. They really wanted me. And I was just really intrigued with the idea of living in India. I'd never even thought of going there, much less living there, you know. And so decided to kind of take the leap and just kind of dive right in. So had you done a lot of international traveling before that? A little bit. You know, growing up, I went to Taiwan quite a bit. Most of my relatives are based in Taipei right now. And so we would go roughly every like three or four years, I think, when I was growing up and we would spend a lot of time there. So I, I had a little bit of taste of kind of international travel from there. I did a bunch of trips kind of in the U.S., I did like a two-week mission trip to the Dominican Republic um, my senior year in high school with the church that I was involved with when I was growing up. And so I've always loved traveling. I've always loved kind of seeing the world. I don't know. I think just kind of due to circumstances, though, I kind of found myself in Massachusetts for kind of most of my early life. So what was the experience like in India? Oh, man, it was really intense. I learned a lot of things, I think, about the world, you know. I think the first things I remember about India were just kind of being confronted with, I guess, like the economic disparity in our world. I was teaching at a school that was like literally right next door to a slum, but I was also teaching students whose parents were diplomats from all over the world. It felt like I was teaching like a small model UN every class that I had, you know. 
there was kind of like a level of affluence also that I, I'd never really sort of experienced in my small town as well that I was also kind of getting to experience. The food was very different. The sounds, the smells were all very, very different, you know. It was not really easy, actually. I remember the first couple of weeks that I was there, you know, I got sick. I remember, I think it was like my second week there. It was like the worst I'd ever been. It was like a gastrointestinal thing. I got sick so much while I was there too. I think mainly from the food. I had to learn how to bargain for taxi fare with taxis because um, I, I didn't have a car while I was there. So the only way for me to get around was either to walk, which like Delhi isn't really a very walkable city. So I either had to get taxi cabs or auto rickshaws to get around. And you'd always have to negotiate the fare with them. Before you get in? Yeah, yeah. And so I had to learn how to negotiate, I guess. Just like growing up in America, it, it's just not really a skill that you necessarily pick up right. in your day-to-day life, you know. And so I had to learn very quickly how to do that. I had to learn, you know, how to, I guess, kind of navigate in the system there. But yeah, I think I adapted pretty quickly. I was kind of in a very supportive expat kind of bubble also. I had a lot of support from the school that I was working for and the community that I was with. It was also a really amazing experience because I was living on a compound with a bunch of other teachers, very close to everybody that I was kind of in community with. And so in some ways, it kind of felt like I was going to college, but like with my family in the sense that like you're like living with everybody that you see every day. Like after school, every day we would hang out in the little park area for all the kind of teachers and our, our, our kids would just kind of run around and play in the playground. And we would all kind of sit around in lawn chairs and like there'd be people barbecuing background. You know, some people would be playing like cornhole or horseshoes kind of off to the side. Usually there'd be drinks shared and we'd just be, you know, chatting about our kind of adventures, our travels, you know, hardships that we were experiencing, you know, like issues with household help or stuff that we encountered in the market or whatever. So I definitely got a lot out of it. Did you guys get to travel a lot within India? What was that like? And what was the adjustment like for your family? Yeah, we did get to do a little bit. I kind of wish that we'd been able to do more, but my kids were pretty little at the time. So it kind of limited what we could do. But we did get to see like a little bit of Northern India. We visited some hill towns. I got to go on some trips with school also. So like I got to see Kolkata and the Sundarbans region. And I got to see rural India also as well, kind of in the kind of neighboring area. And so, yeah, it was a really cool experience. You know, I feel like if you ever go to India, it's really hard to not be changed, I guess, by the experience because you just see like so much of humanity, I guess. Yeah, there's just so much kind of new stuff to experience as like a person growing up in the West. Yeah. Did you teach at an American school? And was it American English primarily or were there other international teachers as well? Yeah, yeah. It was an American international school. So yeah, all the instruction was in English. I think one of the things I always have to explain to my friends back home is that English is like the primary language for like business and like government and politics in India. So most of the more affluent Indians will speak English. And so even still, like most people usually know like a little bit of English kind of here and there, colloquial English, you know. And so in in that sense, it was kind of easy for us to transition because we didn't have language as sort of that barrier for us when we were coming in. I think living here in Vietnam, actually, there's probably less proficiency, although there still are a lot of people who will speak English here too. But I didn't find that the language was necessarily something that was tough for us. So what was the transition to Vietnam? Why did you decide to leave India? There were many things I loved about India, but the thing that was really tough for us was the air pollution. 
Delhi has like some of the worst air pollution in the world. Like I had to wear a pollution mask every single time I stepped outside during the winter months. So basically in November, right after Diwali, which is like Indian Christmas, the air pollution would suddenly get really, really, really bad. I could like taste the air pollution. And so I was concerned about my own health, my family's health. And we decided that we didn't want to stay there for too long because we were just concerned that it wouldn't be healthy for us in the long run. So once again, we sort of cast a wide net to see where the opportunities were. And through some connections with people that had worked at my school and kind of people that I knew, we ended up getting a job in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. And so that's where I've been for the past four years. So tell us about Ho Chi Minh. I was there for a school project, but it was only there for about two weeks. So I didn't get to see it very much. Yeah, yeah. I love Ho Chi Minh City. It's such an amazing place. Compared to India, it's so easy to live here. The weather's really nice. I mean, it's hot, I guess, but I can wear shorts year-round, which was very novel for me my first year here, especially as a New Englander growing up in Massachusetts. Right. <laughs> the food here is amazing. It's really easy to get around. People here are so nice. They're so warm and friendly. And I think one thing that was nice about coming to Vietnam was it was the first time where I experienced blending in as like an Asian person, I guess. You know, I think all my life, I'd kind of grown up always sort of being in the minority. And so when I came to Vietnam, it was sort of the first time where I wasn't really part of the majority, but I kind of looked like the majority, I guess. And so there are just certain things that I think I experienced, I guess, that were just very kind of novel and very unique to me while, while I was here. That was actually something that I really enjoyed, actually, when I first came here. So what is that like? So do the people expect you to speak Vietnamese when you are ordering food or going out or dealing with the day-to-day? -day? I think there's some of that, you know, I think like I get a lot of people speaking to me in Vietnamese initially, and then I usually indicate to them that I couldn't understand them. And then they would usually switch to English or they'd find somebody who could speak English to kind of help translate. I've picked up a little bit of conversational Vietnamese kind of since then. I think that sense of not having attention on you when you're like the only person in a crowd, I guess, that looks different. Right. Not having to experience that, I guess, was kind of cool. <laughs> I don't know how to really explain yeah. it. Yeah. Are there Taiwanese communities? Or did you have Taiwanese communities in India or Vietnam? Because I know like at least in Ho Chi Minh, there are some industrial areas that are Taiwanese-owned companies, but operating in Ho Chi Minh, right? Yeah, yeah, there are. We knew some Taiwanese people in India, but it wasn't really that many. The area that we're living in here is called Fumihang, and it's actually owned by a Taiwanese corporation. And so there's a pretty strong Taiwanese presence here in the neighborhood that I'm living in. Wait, the whole neighborhood is owned by a Taiwanese corporation? Well, like, I think they own, like, the land, I guess. It's like a joint venture. I oh, guess. interesting. Okay. It's kind of big, huge Taiwanese group. And so there's a pretty strong Taiwanese presence here. A lot of Koreans also. Yeah, so there's, like, a Taiwanese school in the neighborhood. I work at the international school that's kind of part of this group here. I wouldn't say that I'm like very plugged in with the Taiwanese community here either. I'm probably more plugged in with the American community. I do know some people that are Taiwanese. There's a woman that's friends with my wife actually who was teaching my kids Mandarin for a little while. She was Taiwanese also. What's the coronavirus situation in Vietnam? So I've been doing virtual school for eight weeks now. Whoa. Pretty wild. Here and teaching my students online, doing like instructional videos instead of teaching them in, in person. We're like sort of on lockdown for the next two weeks and places have been like slowly closing. So bars, restaurants, all the non-essential places have closed. I think ride sharing has kind of stopped. So the country's been 
pretty quiet, especially in like the major urban areas. So I've been at home for the past three weeks and I've only gone out for like walks and like grocery shopping. Wow. Okay. With that being said, you know, I think the government's being very, very cautious. They acted very, very quickly when the whole coronavirus started kind of spreading throughout the world. And so I, I definitely feel safe here in Vietnam. There have been very few cases of people getting infected here, especially compared to other countries kind of in the sort of surrounding areas. Nobody's died from it yet. It's been challenging in some ways, but also I think I'm, I'm also fortunate, I feel, to be living somewhere where countries like really taking it seriously and they're kind of putting in place preventive measures to keep everybody safe and healthy. Do you have tips for one, teaching classes online to students for teachers who are doing that for the first time? And then two, what's the healthcare situation like if you're an expat living abroad? Yeah, Let's see. So I think for tips, the biggest tip that I can have is to give yourself the grace to not try to do everything that you would usually do in like a normal classroom. And I think like my first week teaching, I probably overloaded my students a little bit too much with trying to give them sort of the same experience virtually that I would usually give them in, in, in the classroom. And I think it was just too much. And th- th- there's just only so much that you can do when you're teaching through a computer screen, you know? And so I think you know, giving yourself the grace to just let your teaching be different, be pared down and be not the same, I think is helpful for not just you, but also for your students and your students' parents and everybody involved. The healthcare situation here, you know, I'd say is it's pretty good for expats in general. If you're a foreigner traveling into Vietnam, you'll usually get, probably shouldn't say usually, you, you will get put into a quarantine. And so you'll like get sent to this place where you'll, you'll be required to kind of stay for 14 days and they'll kind of monitor your health and make sure that you're okay. There are like Western trained doctors here in Vietnam. And so there are hospitals where you can get care. I'd say that like the level of care probably isn't comparable to kind of more developed countries like say like Singapore or Japan or whatever, but you can get care for it. I think part of the reason why the government's being super cautious and extra careful is they don't have the same capacity to handle a big outbreak that maybe other kind of more developed countries would have that have more money and kind of more resources to tackle a problem. We've had pretty good experience with healthcare here. You have to buy like U.S. health insurance to use over there? Yeah, yeah. So I have like U.S. or like international healthcare through my employer. So I think for most expats, if they're, well, I probably shouldn't say most expats. If you're coming here as a teacher, usually your employer will have health insurance for you. I think it does kind of vary a little bit because everybody's kind of situation for coming here as an expat is pretty different. Coming here as a language teacher is very different. I had a friend who was working here at a law firm, and I think his law firm didn't provide health insurance for him, which I found like really interesting. Yeah, I think, I think it, it kind of depends. If you're interested in applying to be an international school teacher, what is that process like? Do you have to have a teaching certificate in the U.S. already? Yeah, yeah. Usually you'd want to have at least a year or two of experience. Although I have met people who have gone straight into teaching internationally. 
but most teachers that I know will usually have taught in the U.S. for a couple of years. And what they'll usually do is they'll go to a job fair for international schools and they'll apply for positions through that. And from there, they'll find whatever opportunities are out there and then they'll just kind of spread out all, all over the world, you know. Most of the teaching opportunities are in the Middle East and Asia, actually. That's where I'd say most of the opportunity is. I mean, there's international schools all over the world. I'd say like the more kind of lucrative ones, though, are in the Middle East and in Asia. That's where kind of the money is. There's a lot of international schools in China. It's kind of a growing market for international education. I mean, that was really the path that I took kind of breaking into international education. Do you find that it's similar to your education growing up in U.S. public schools in terms of like extracurriculars or arts and music? Because you're involved in music as well. I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty similar. The teaching curriculum's definitely the same. I think every international school has like its own kind of flavor, I guess, and its own kind of different quirks, I guess, depending on where you are in the world. Like, for instance, if you're teaching in the Middle East, they have like a different timeline for weekends. Their weekends are, I think, Friday and Saturday, as opposed to Saturday and Sunday. So that, that's kind of different. You know, here in Asia, I'd say like in general, athletics aren't really emphasized as much, I guess, as other kinds of extracurriculars. But I think a lot of the same kind of like arts and music kind of opportunities that you would find in U.S. public schools, you can also find in international schools, at least from, from my own experience, you know. I've been like somewhat involved with extracurricular clubs here that are kind of doing music and stuff. There's like a performance club that's at our school that I've kind of helped out with a little bit. So what do you play? So you're a concert master in Ho Chi Minh City and an aspiring professional musician. Tell us more. Yeah, yeah. I've been playing music my whole life. Started off on piano, played piano for my parents' church growing up. That was like kind of like my regular gig. Fell in love with playing music when I was in middle school and I picked up the bass guitar. Music's been a big part of my life. When I moved here, I really wanted to get more involved in the music scene here. So I started up a concert series with this group called So Far Sounds. Oh yeah, we have that here. Yeah, yeah. They've got cities everywhere in the world. And so I started up So Far Sounds, Ho Chi Minh City, when I moved here. I hosted shows roughly like once every month for about two years, I guess, two, two, three years. It was sort of my way of connecting with the kind of musical community, but also a way for me to kind of network. And um, it, it also gave me kind of a platform to perform, but also kind of learn how to run shows, booking, scouting, that sort of thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. I had a music project that I started when I was in India called Meta Forester. I, I was doing like a one-man band act where I played guitar and I sang and I also played drums with my feet all at the same time. And so when I came here, I also was doing gigs and shows at like small clubs and bars, coffee shops, that sort of thing. Yeah. And so I've, I've been like somewhat plugged in with the music community here, mostly with other expats living in Ho Chi Minh City. But yeah, I, you know, I think one thing that I discovered when I was here is that Vietnamese people really love music. That, that's, that's something that I picked up my first year here, and it helped me really fall in love with the city, I think. What are some of the bands or musicians that you follow that you would recommend? Uh, here? Ooh, let's see. Or where do people go if they're in Ho Chi Minh City and want to catch a show? Yeah, there's a club called Yoko Cafe. They're probably like the longest running music club here in Vietnam. They, they do music, I think, every night. It's, it's a really cool place to check out. There's a place called Acoustic Bar that I went to a lot my first year here, and they also do music every night. At that place, they mostly do cover music. 
Yeah, a lot of um, musicians will play cover music here in, in, in Asia. It, it's actually one thing that I think a lot of like Western musicians have to kind of get used to, I guess, when they come here. As a musician, like in the US, it's more typical to go to a music club or cafe and see people playing music that they've written. But here in Ho Chi Minh City, it's, it, it's actually less common, I guess, to see that. You, you, you'll usually see more people playing like top 40 stuff. And that's, that's just kind of what people are more used to, you know? Yeah. It was definitely an adjustment for me because I, I was more used to just kind of playing my own original stuff because that's what, you know, people expected back home. So how can people catch you? Well, you know, right now I'm like transitioning into a different music project. So I actually very recently retired that project and I've, I've been kind of writing more new music, trying to write songs that are about like my own personal experience, I guess. Most of the songs that I've been written before were, I guess they were written about stories, I guess, that weren't kind of directly related to me. Yeah, I recently launched a YouTube channel, actually. So I'm, I'm kind of starting to post some music there. Right now, it's, it's just cover music, but I'm kind of gearing up towards releasing some original songs. Are you comfortable sharing that here? Yeah, yeah, I could. I, I like literally just started it yesterday. So. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, I could send you the links. Okay. Is there like a youtube.com backslash whatever? Yeah, yeah, there is. Although I think the YouTube channels are usually like a it's like a alphabet. Ah, uh, okay, okay. Is there an easy way for people to follow you on social media if they wanted to get in touch about schools and other things? I'm on uh, Facebook and Instagram also. So you can follow me there. The project's called Delta Crab and it's Delta Crab with two Bs. Awesome. Cool. Okay, so let's go back to recommendations for food in either Delhi and or Ho Chi Minh City and top vacation spots or top local sites. One of the most powerful things for me when I went to Ho Chi Minh City was the museum. I forget what the museum was called, but it was like the Holocaust Museum, but the Vietnamese version. Yeah, yeah. Funny enough, I, I've, I've actually never gone to the museum. It's been on kind of my list of places to go, but I've heard from colleagues who, who've been there before that it's, it's, it's pretty intense. Yeah. What is it called? I forget what the name was. The War Remnants Museum. It'll definitely give you like a different perspective on what the American War was for the other side, I guess. They call it the American War here. I've heard that the perspective they have is biased, you know, but it is a different perspective, you know, and it definitely helps give you more perspective on this really important event that happened to this country. You know, while we're on the topic, I think one thing that I discovered when I was here is like for a lot of Americans, when they think of Vietnam, they think of the war. That's, that's like kind of like the first thing that comes to their mind, you know. Their perspective about Vietnam is just kind of funneled through the images and the movies that they've seen. And when Americans come here, they discover that there's just like so much more to the country than just this kind of one event that happens. The country has really grown quite a bit. It's really come into its own. It's industrialized. It's developed quite a bit. It's actually very kind of advanced in some ways. I've also found that it's like a subject that I think people don't really talk about that much while they're here. And I think there is a lot of TV shows and kind of novels and stories, I guess, about the war and the aftermath. But I think for like a lot of Vietnamese people here, they see that as something that happened kind of in the past. And for them, that's just what it was. It's, it's something that happened to their parents or their grandparents. Yeah, you know, I, I think a lot of Americans come here and they feel like the Vietnamese people aren't going to like them or they're going to feel guilty being here because they think that the Vietnamese are going to view Americans as these like invaders that kind of messed everything up. But that really, in general, has not been the case at all for me living here in, in Ho Chi Minh. I think, if anything, I found that Vietnamese people here really love Americans and they really love America, actually. 
Yeah. So anyways, sorry. Uh, you're, you're asking me about places to see here in Vietnam and India, right? Yeah. And food. Yeah. Yeah. And food, of course. <laughs> Let me see here. What are some great, great food experiences? There's a very popular touristy area in Ho Chi Minh called Benton Market. There's a lot of great street food that you can get there, especially if you go after like seven or eight, I guess. It's a good spot to kind of walk around and just see what the local cuisine's like. There's a lot of great Japanese food here, actually, and Korean food as well. A lot of great Korean barbecues. Some of the best sushi that I've had has actually been here in Vietnam. There's this really cool restaurant called Noir that I've actually yet to go to, but it's also like on my list of places to go. It's a dining in the dark experience where all the waitstaff are blind. And so what you'll do is you'll go into the dining room and it'll be completely pitch dark and you're kind of guided by the waitstaff and they'll help you out with getting seated and they'll, they'll tell you what it is that you're eating, but everything's completely in the dark and you can't see anything. It's supposed to be super cool. Wow. How do you spell it? Noir. N-O-I-R. Oh, like French for... Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think if you're in Vietnam, you, you definitely have to check out Vietnamese coffee. The coffee that they make here is amazing. There's so many coffee shops here. It's like as many coffee shops as there are like convenience stores. But the coffee here is great. There's such a wide variety. What makes it so special? Well, I think there's a lot of locally grown coffee that's here. So I think that there is like a very wide variety of different kinds of roasting styles that you can find here. You can find the more kind of traditional Vietnamese coffee, which is like really, really strong and usually had with condensed milk. So it's like really strong, but also really sweet. It actually kind of reminded me of the coffee that I had when I was in the Dominican Republic. It's also very like, very, very strong, but also incredibly sweet. It's like drinking candy. I think like part of the culture here in Saigon or Ho Chi Minh City is people will just kind of sit around, they'll, they'll, they'll lounge, they'll, they'll kind of have a cup of coffee, they'll hang out with family and friends, they'll, they'll kind of chat and just take it easy, you know? I think the like French kind of cafe culture influenced Vietnam, you know? Yeah, so there's that. I mean, there's just so many great food places. Besides banh mi and pho, what are some other Vietnamese dishes? I would imagine it's probably pretty regionalized as well across Vietnam, right? Yeah, there's a Vietnamese style noodle called Bum Bo Hue that's also pretty popular here that I really like. There's actually a very like wide variety of different kinds of noodles that you can have here in Ho Chi Minh. And is it really a breakfast food? It is, yeah, yeah. You know, there was a slow chain that was in my apartment building like a while back and we, we would actually go have pho for breakfast. That's amazing. On a Sunday, you know, just wake up and just go down for pho. It was great. <laughs> yeah, I actually found that the pho here is pretty different from the pho that I had back in Massachusetts. Like, I think the kind of meat that they use here is just kind of different from the kind of meat that they use in the U.S. Like here in Vietnam, like U.S. beef is kind of considered this like sort of premium food product, you know? And so you'll see it like kind of advertised a lot at steakhouses or pho restaurants. Like this particular pho has U.S. beef or Australian beef or something like that, you know? But yeah, I, I, I really, really love the pho here. I'm trying to think about what else there is that is like kind of specialty here. There's this like Vietnamese style, it's like a Vietnamese style pizza, I guess. It uses like a Vietnamese style dough, I guess. That's, it's like rice-based, I guess. I'm trying to think about how to describe it. Maybe more like a calzone, I guess, in the sense that it's kind of like a sandwich and it's got like cheese and all these other vegetables and kind of meats and stuff. It's sort of like pizza, but like very Asian, I guess, <laughs> at the same time. 
the name of it's like eluding me though. So <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> what are you doing next after this? Are you gonna pick a different country or coming back to the US? Yeah, so I am gonna be coming back to the US. I'll be moving to Memphis, Tennessee. The main reason we're going back to the US is so that my wife can finish her master's degree program. She is studying to become a clinical mental health counselor. Awesome. She's planning on doing her internship back in the US. And so we are moving our family back there. Is she doing her master's studies right now in Vietnam? Yeah, yeah, she is. It's a distance learning program through Adams State University, which is uh, based in Colorado. Wow, that's cool. So that's the next step for us. So the kids have gotten to move a lot of different places growing up. Are there tips you have for families who are doing that with young kids? Or is it different for kids that are used to growing up abroad? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I feel like phrasing it as like an adventure, I think is helpful. And I think every kid's also different. Like when my son found out that we were moving from India to Vietnam, you know, he was a lot sadder than my daughter was. I think for him, he had like a lot of friends, I guess, that he knew that he was going to have to say goodbye to. Whereas my daughter was like a lot younger, I think, at the time. And so for her, it was just kind of the next thing. She didn't really have much of a basis for that kind of experience. I think my kids have kind of learned that every time you move somewhere new, while you do have to say goodbye and things do change, you know, there are other things that happen that are new and you do make new friends and you do get to kind of have these new experiences, you know. And so, I mean, I think now that my kids have been moving around so much, you know, it's become who they are. I feel pretty confident that they'll be able to adjust pretty well and that they'll be able to thrive, I guess, in our next move. You know, coming back to the U.S. is going to be like moving to a new country for them. While they have visited the U.S. every summer since we've been living abroad, this will be the first time that they'll really be living in the U.S. and actually be able to have memories about it, you know. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it, you know. I think that there'll be something that they'll also gain from that as well. I'm kind of looking forward to them also kind of learning about their home country. Cool, this is amazing. Any last words? Yeah, um, let me see. Well, first off, thank you for starting a podcast, actually. I'm like a big fan of podcasts. I listen to them all the time. As I've been trying to connect more to my own Taiwanese roots and learn about my own culture and kind of explore my own identity more, I've been kind of trying to go out into the world, onto the internet, and try to find more people who are kind of experiencing the same thing that I am. So I just think it's great that you're doing your podcast, that you're getting these stories out there and that you're telling them. I think it's great. Oh, thank you. Thanks for reaching out. Thanks for listening. I feel like it's, yeah, it's really interesting how I, I talked to somebody yesterday who was like, yeah, like when you hit your 30s, like late 20s and 30s, you start digging into the identity piece a little bit more. So I'm glad you guys are willing to chat about it. Yeah, it yeah. It feels a little less lonely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. Cool. Well, Scott, I know it's late there. Thank you so much again for sharing your story with us. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Good luck moving back and good luck having the rest of your school year there. And to sign off, we'll play Scott's EP from 2018. It's called Mixtape. It's from a retired project, Meta Forester, that he referred to earlier in this interview. It's a song about his parents told from his dad's perspective. Scott's dad used to make mixtapes for Scott's mother when they were still living in Taiwan. And if you want to follow along on Scott's adventures, remember to check out Facebook and Instagram, as well as his YouTube channel, Delta Crab, with two Bs. Delta Crab, D-E-L-T-A-C-R-A-B. But on uh, social media, there are two Bs in Crab. 
That's it for today. Please send me a message on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at TWDIASPORA or shoot me an email. It's hello at TaiwaneseDiaspora.com. And if you or other people you know have stories that they'd like to share on this podcast, please send them my way as well. All right, see you next time.